0: 32 counties and 32 questions. My name is Una. Andrea is uh, otherwise occupied. And this is United Ireland. We usually take a county, long time ago, <laughs> dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. But in these extraordinary times, we're responding to issues emerging from life within a golden, golden, global pandemic. Sorry, I'm a bit, a uh, bit all over the place this week. Um mind you uh this week we are bringing um regional and local vibes by asking does Dunleary Wrathdown hold the answer to pandemic era urban planning and design um or maybe more accurately we're looking at the big Uh, big, small and small, big changes that were made in that part of the country to streets and roads and paths and parks and all that kind of stuff during the pandemic. And we're talking to the person who made them happen and asking whether this model of change could work elsewhere around the country. Shout out to all our Patreon supporters for supporting this podcast and making it happen. It is a new month. Um... God, I kind of feel like August was a bit of a write-off, really, considering it rained uh, in most parts for the entire thing and uh, flew in. But it is a new month. Welcome to September. Uh, Check whether your cards that are linked to your Patreon account are updated. Uh, Because mine wasn't. Oops. Um, Because every month uh, some people fall off. They don't check that. If you're listening to this and aren't already a Patreon supporter, do join us. And get some cool rewards. You will also get the Sunday Soothe. You may have noticed that our weekly meditation uh, and Good Vibes Only pod was not uh, available this weekend. I'm going to be completely honest with you. And that's because I was playing rounders for over two hours and Andrea uh, got called into work. So we just didn't have the time. Uh, Sometimes life and rounders. Gets in the way. When we have, however, been putting out some other uh, podcasts. If you haven't listened to our podcasts over the last week, uh, you can check out 32 Questions for Kate O'Connell, the former Finnegal TD, um, which is very interesting. Very interesting conversation. Wouldn't be politically aligned myself with Kate O'Connell. Um, but at the same time, you know, I guess it's important to listen to. Uh, people's points of views who aren't necessarily uh, coming from where you're coming from and uh, she had some interesting insights uh, into the 2020 election um, she lost her seat uh, her constituency compatriot slash rival Owen Murphy saved his and she's just said some interesting things about the direction of the party what drew her to Fine Gael uh, Fine Gaelers tend not to be asked those questions we ask them and uh, various other bits and bobs. I found it a very enlightening conversation, I have to say. So check that out. We also put out our uh, monthly byline episode this week. Byline is our companion series that talks to journalists and, you know, talks about the process of, of the stories they've worked on. Uh, and this week we were speaking to Eva Grace Moore, the Irish Examiner, who, of course, was one of the team in there who broke the Golfgate story fascinating uh, chat with her. She's a really interesting person, very interesting and diverse journalistic background. Uh, really smart thoughts on the role of being a Paul car in modern Ireland. Um, so yeah, check that out. And, and she goes into like very much in depth how the Golfgate story came to be um, and how um, she worked on it and Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. So into into the kind of the under the hood of that process. Um, Normally, this is where myself and Andrea ask each other how we're feeling. Uh, (laughs) It's kind of weird to just be talking to myself on this. I am a little bit sad uh, this week because it is electric picnic week. And um, it's, you know, not going to festivals this summer has been a massive bummer. Uh, you know, the the release, the uh, enjoyment, the therapeutic power of listening to great music and watching loads of gigs and hanging around with loads of people and, you know, being communal and uh, hanging out with your mates and having a laugh in the campsite and all of that kind of stuff coming across different things and having mad serendipitous chats with people and going to the rave in the woods and seeing all the Irish acts excel. Uh, It's just hard, isn't it? To not, to not have that uh, harder still for the artists who would have been performing in all different capacities. And of course, for the crews and the, and the food people and uh, you know, all the, people who put these things on all the promoters and all that kind of stuff so uh, we will be talking in more depth about the live events industry soon Um, but yeah maybe this weekend I'll I'll sit on a wet patch of grass and drink a warm can of beer and imagine I'm in Strad Valley Uh, but until then (laughs) here is the State of the Nation. So the schools are back Um, very much enjoyed the very cute uh, front page of the Irish times with the kid in the school uniform. I'm not really one for like talking about how cute kids are, but you know, seeing all the kids around my area anyway, in Dublin seven being delighted running out of school and stuff like that is really nice. I hope parents are um, getting a bit of a break in the day now, that the blended learning is being unblended in some way. Uh, the department of education um, the Leaving Cert results are out September 7th, I think. The department decided not to, you know, do this school ranking thing, uh, which really would have built in, you know, discrimination based on what school you go to. Uh, that You know, built in that, that bias into the Leaving Cert results algorithm. This is something that I highlighted back in May that this was going to uh, provide them with a bit of a problem. And then obviously subsequently the... Uh, UK, uh, who haven't been exactly on top of the pandemic, uh, had their issue with their algorithm. It does raise the question, though, that considering uh, the department knows well which schools are "quote unquote" disadvantaged, why don't they fix them uh, if they, if they have that information? In other news, uh the, the pub rows go on and on. Helen McEntee, uh is the Minister for Justice, um working on new legislation to kind of allow wet pubs, which I just think that's <laughs> such an unpleasant term. Um, and one we never used before. I don't really think before this, um, to, to basically, you know, allow the the Guardie to or they're making this legislation um, to give powers to the Gardaí that will allow for the reopening of pubs that don't serve uh, food. And uh, that was reported kind of early on Wednesday in the Irish Times. And again, it's the same stuff, you know, the type of PPE things, the visors, the table service, uh, contact tracing, all that kind of stuff. So uh, Helen McAtee was on Clareburn today, or today, I'm recording this on Wednesday, talking about that. So, I mean, hopefully some people will be able to save their livelihoods. Um, and very, very uh, sadly, I was looking at footage there um, online of a vigil that was being held in Dublin City Centre by the fire to you remember um, Tiago Cortez, who um, was the victim of a hit and run on North Wall Quay in, in Dublin, uh, inner city, on Monday night? He was on his bike. He was delivering food for delivery at the time. Uh, it's incredibly tragic and um, our hearts really do go out to, to his family and friends and well done for people gathering there to remember him I'm sure it gave people who knew him and also other kind of workers for, for Teliveroo uh, some, some solidarity there. So now we're going to talk about our main bit of this podcast. It's about whether a network of villages in the south of Dublin are pro- potentially providing a model for the rest of the urban areas in the country. So, when the pandemic broke out, obviously, uh, one of the things that the the kind of onset on the early months, you know, kind of March, April, May, were loads of discussions about how to facilitate how people needed to physically move differently around their areas, be that widening footpaths, um, prioritising pedestrians, and also, of course, uh, the car traffic uh, collapsed, or be it temporarily. Considering that a lockdown was in place and also that everybody was working from home, who could work from home. Obviously, loads of people can't. And it threw up loads of interesting uh, points around population density, around um, what cities will look like if there isn't an office, you know, if everybody's not like all the office people aren't working in their offices. Um, and how people are kind of staying closer to home, right? So so what needs to be enhanced enhanced in the public realm as a uh, civil servant in a council might say. Um, and looking at kind of various parts of the country who are doing different things. I mean, I think Cork is, you know, really out of the traps in terms of their outdoor dining type stuff. And I think it's fair to say that if you're living in Dublin city centre, you know, there was all this kind of n- initial discourse about like, oh, now they're going to push college green pedestrianisation through. That's going to be the public plaza now. They want to do that for ages. They're going to do that. Uh, Hasn't happened. and um, They've trialled the pedestrianisation of some streets that has happened in, in small little pockets um, around South William Street, Drew Street, that kind of thing. But these kind of big changes, I think, that we felt maybe could come to pass um, Because of the crisis of a pandemic, have maybe been a little bit more muted than people anticipated. But in one council uh, in the country, Dunleary Rathdown County Council, uh, they have seemed to have been doing things a little bit more proactively. Uh, For people who haven't been in that area since um, the pandemic hit, There have been a lot of changes that feel quite seismic, notably the coastal cycling route, uh, which essentially took an entire lane away from the road and turned it into kind of a non-slip cycle path. Um, As well as greening certain uh, villages like Black Rock, um, having some kind of nicer design flourishes in terms of subtle separations of, of, of road and path and cycle lanes and so on instead of these quite incongruous bollards and things like that. And, uh, you know, street furniture and taking up car parking spaces, which has happened in, you know, loads of cities and towns around the country. And uh, Tom Lyons wrote this piece in The Currency about um, a guy called Robert Burns who's, who's been working in the council there and his outlook and the way I was thinking about things was very intriguing to me. The currency, by the way, you should all subscribe to if you, if you can afford it. Uh, it's often got very good stuff on it. Um, And I just thought, well, we'll have a chat with them because myself and Andrea often are having a go. Now, I mean, our primary target tends to be Dublin City Council, um, which is probably unfair. You know, there's loads of really good people working and they're doing good stuff, but it, it does often feel as a... As a As a resident of the capital, it can, you know, sometimes you you get a bit frustrated and uh, it's not fair to be, uh, you know, uh, criticising people who are working in in this kind of public service all the time. And we wanted to just talk to this guy, Robert Burns, about his perspective, uh, which seems a little more kind of 360 on these kind of things and that may offer as an example around the country. So uh, here's our main part of the podcast today. Does Dunleary hold the answer to urban design and planning? So Robert Burns is the director of infrastructure, sustainable mobility and climate change. Considerable attention for its measures during the summer to improve streets for cyclists and pedestrians, amongst other things. Um it's really worth reading the excellent piece Tom Lyons wrote on Burns' work over on the currency, actually. And now this part of the country is providing something of a model for other urban areas potentially to follow. Um hi Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Una. Tell me a little bit about yourself first. You were in Sligo before you were in Donegal, I understand.
1: Uh, well, no, I was in Clare. Oh, Clare. My apologies. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I worked in County Clare for thirteen years. So I I got a position with Donegal County Council about two and a half years ago, and I came to to Dublin to live and work here. And I in the last what six months, I became a director of service in. Um, in the area down County Council. and I guess these projects have been some of my first work as director in 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 DLR.
0: This um part of Dublin it's it's very it's quite heavily populated um it has a lot of unique uh I suppose a network of villages um it's a coastal region um it's a suburban region uh, it has new communities very uh, long standing communities Um, what were you you thinking the biggest improvements uh, could be made in this area pre-pandemic let's say when you kind of landed down Uh,
1: yeah it it, is and and it is the smallest county council in in Ireland as well which is is, um, something just worth noting so it it has a mix and while people see it as very much an urban or suburban area there's actually a third of the area that's rural as well that's pretty much on the west side of the M50s and Glen Cullen and Kilterna and places like that. So there's there's quite a broad range. And I guess because there is this coastal element it has a lot of amenities, a lot of natural amenities that are are very positive and are a great draw for, for people from outside the area, but also something for the people who live there to enjoy. And yes, there is a variation between, I suppose, east and the west of the county. East is probably the older, more mature area. Areas like Duniry, Sandy Cove, Dalkey, Black Rock, and then the newer areas, which would be across the N11 in Dundrum, um, Ballinteer, and, and areas like that. So yeah, there, there's, there's quite a mix, and I, I guess it is viewed as being maybe a, a, quite a prosperous area as well. But then there's there's a mix within that, um, and its setup is very much when you look at it, um, a town and village um, uh, hubs, and then communities that are are kind of spread out around that and who who look towards those hubs for, um, you know, their physical needs, their social needs, their cultural needs, so schools, um, shopping, um, theatres, cinema, um, all of those things. And I think what we've seen probably in the last number of months is people maybe spending a lot more time in their own communities and and coming to know them better and enjoy them more. But pre-pandemic I guess there has been there, there was a lot of opportunities, and we have in, in DLR, I guess, made um, the most of those in many ways. So we have very fine towns and villages uh, Dunleary Town Centre, along the seafront, and uh, Dundrum in many ways, um, Dalky. So we had a lot of positive things that were, were going for us. But I do think before the pandemic, we had a lot more movement and a lot more people who were moving from the suburbs to work in um, usually city-centre locations. So there was a lot of travel involved, a lot of dislocation, really, where families were probably starting very early in the morning, bringing kids to school, and then going on through their journeys. So they're quite long days, and that's really one of the significant changes that has come about as a result of COVID. With more people working from home, the schools were closed as well, so families were spending more time together. You had the restrictions, the travel restrictions, which meant people really needed to think quite hard about what they would do with their time. And uh, they spent a lot of that time exploring their own local roads, their local parks, their local amenities, and finding out a lot more about where they lived rather than maybe driving for a number of kilometres to go to a park or to a beach across the county. So I think and that's probably a dividend. That's something that's remained, as far as I can see, that people now are much closer to one another, in their own households, closer to their communities, and closer to their place to that to their um to that physical place where they where, where they stay
0: when the pandemic took hold i suppose, and when lockdown occurred, what were you thinking straight away were going to be in the important things from the perspective of your job and your responsibilities in the council so
1: when it took hold uh, i guess like everyone else it was uh, while it was being trailed, and we knew that it was happening elsewhere in the world, and particularly in Europe, I guess when we saw what was happening in Italy, that's really when everybody um, uh, paid attention, and then the cases started to rise here. And I can I think there was an element of disbelief uh, for the first few weeks, but then it became clear. I guess around the middle of March, I seem to remember Friday, might have been the 13th or 14th of March when the announcement came from the government that there would be severe restrictions in place and I think that really set it home to everyone and we we had that then that new concept of physical or social distancing which we've never had to live with before and all of those hygiene requirements. So it was really uh, a bolt from the blue for for us all and we had to adapt very quickly. And I think one of the things about uh, local authorities is they're actually quite good at a crisis Uh, we would respond well to severe weather events like storms and and, uh, snow and ice and I think we did mobilise quite quickly and we had emergency management teams in place to to deal with that Uh, but I think you know our concern was you know to protect the safety of the citizens and our own employees as well so we had to put in place fairly extensive measures to um, provide hygiene requirements physical distancing requirements for our staff and all of our staff were considered to be essential workers as well so they didn't really have the luxury of maybe going home, and um, they were fortunate maybe to have a job too. Because I know a lot of people lost uh, lost employment during that. But they they had to come out and empty the bins and maintain the roads and and fix the water pipes during that period of time. So I think we 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 got to see that the local authorities actually provide an essential service. And I think that helped with that connection with the the local community as well.
0: What kind of infrastructural things or. Uh, maybe kind of ideas that you may not have had an opportunity to get to fast track before this. Did you start rolling out then when you thought, OK, maybe, well, obviously we need to change the layout of certain, you know, streets or whatever, but also maybe we can try something different here?
1: Yeah, um, I guess the main driver was, was COVID. I mean, a lot of the projects that I've been involved in wouldn't have happened, I think, if COVID wasn't there maybe acted as a catalyst, some of these might have happened anyway, it may have taken a longer time, but that whole issue to do with safety uh, was paramount. So with physical distancing, people needed more space, and what we were seeing in our towns and villages in particular is that people were trying to avoid meeting each other on footpaths, Uh, they were queuing at some of the shops and pharmacies and so on, and then they were having to move out onto the road and risk, um, you know, being struck by vehicles. So it was a very serious safety issue from what I could see initially. So we needed to create that additional space um, for the safety of people. And then when we looked at it even further, we started to think about, well, what would happen as we reopen, uh, as the society and the economy would reopen, and what do we think people would need? And for, for me and the team in DLR, we saw the need was, yes, safety. For that extra space that people need because of physical distancing. So if you need widened footpaths, they would need cycle lanes to, to move around freely. Um, and there isn't many things that you can do except to reallocate space, and that's usually looking at things like taking away traffic or driving lanes or parking. But we also saw, part, quite apart from safety, um And I think we are seeing now that people really yearn for a a welcoming and an open environment. They wanted to come back to something that wasn't only safe, but that welcomed them and that they felt comfortable there and they felt that they could relax and linger. And that's one of the central uh, tenets behind our approach is that we wanted to create, you know, aesthetically pleasing villages and village centers and also public spaces that were welcoming so they would have, they would be softened by planters and, and seating and those elements that people really uh, enjoy and and they like to spend time and so it's more than just a functional project where we're looking at putting in new traffic lanes or cycle lanes or even widening footpaths there, there's more to it than that so it's sort of matching function with aesthetics is really what's what we're trying to to do in dlr and we think that creates safe and welcoming environment that people will want to spend time in because I think COVID really shows that um, that if you don't have that, if, if it's quite a narrow or uh, um, maybe a challenging environment, people may not want to, to visit there. And you'd really have a concern about older people who were cocooning and they would have even more concerns about their own personal safety and their health. You know, Do they want to go back to maybe a village that doesn't have that extra space for them or where they may not feel Comfortable or welcome, so that's very much behind our thinking. And and I think we also um, realised that it was very challenging for local businesses. So where we could provide the space for safety uh, by widening footpaths or the cycle lanes, we also looked to see whether opportunities to allow businesses, particularly restaurants and cafes, to take over some of that additional public space and put out their own uh, seating or uh, to expand in that area or to even allow queuing, something as basic as that that would allow those businesses to to reopen because it has been a very difficult time for them.
0: What things do you think have been successful? I mean, lots of people have been talking about the um, the cycle lane out by Seapoint, which now kind of goes a good section of the coast. If you did like a quick fire list of the things that seem to be working, what would they be? Um, I think... Um, Yes, the, the coastal mobility route, as we refer to it, um, seems to be working well. Um,
1: and um, I think that's proven by the amount of people that are using it, by the diversity of the of the, uh, of the people that are using it. So it's used by people who are old, young families, people with mobility challenges. And, um, you know, it's really heartening to see that because I think one of the perceptions might have been about cycle lanes is that it's, it's the preserve of the you know the more aggressive cyclist uh, typically a younger male you know that people would see on maybe the streets of dublin but the reason they would see that is because you know the safe infrastructure isn't in place in many in many locations and so what we're seeing is when you when you put in place safe mobility infrastructure safe cycling infrastructure it enables people to use it, enables those people who are less confident, the, the younger people, children, older people, or anybody who just maybe not that confident to, to, to cycle on our roads or our streets. So that's really been a, a positive. And I guess when people see that, they begin to understand that the potential for, for mobility infrastructure, and they begin to experience it. Because oftentimes, when we're looking at projects, what we get to look at is the status quo, be that, for example on, on the coastal route that would have been Seapoint Avenue with two lanes of traffic and then you get a set of drawings which would be two dimensional or maybe you get a three D rendering of it. But you're still looking at something that might happen in the future and it's only a concept and you have no idea what the impact of that might be. I think now what we have is a situation where you have got a fairer comparison where you had the start where you had a recent memory of the two lane traffic for example but now you see a cycle route has been built you can see how it's been used you can see how the people on the route interact with other road users with pedestrians and so one of the things that we would see is that typically people will be cycling quite slowly on that route maybe 15 to 20 kilometers per hour so a lot of the perceptions that would have been there before about high speed uh, cycling on that route isn't borne out and it's actually a very very much about a social experience now and we see families going out together and families who may have driven to Dunleary for let's say a Saturday or Sunday before now deciding uh, to cycle from maybe Black Rock and spend a day together and when they arrive then in Dunleary because they've been in safe cycling infrastructure uh, they're generally in a a much happier frame of mind Uh, they're less stressed and you know this is where it's it's very positive socially and economically because I believe when they arrive in Dunleary in this instance, they're actually calm, tranquil, happy to spend time there, not worried about the return journey. And so they'll probably spend money in there. They'll go to the shops and restaurants and spend time there and, and, and go to our amenities. So that's, that's a, a boon from this. And so that's something maybe people wouldn't have perceived before from, from just simply putting in safe uh, mobility infrastructure.
0: That kind of thinking, I guess, that kind of more holistic uh, approach is not something that we often hear communicated from or by local authorities. Like what kind of values and thinking underpins your approach to, I suppose, what could be broadly characterized as like urban design? Um,
1: I think at the center of the approach has to be safety. Safety will always be paramount and that's safety for all road users. And we have vulnerable road users. So cyclists and pedestrians are vulnerable road users. And even without COVID, those vulnerabilities were there, but they're exacerbated because of COVID. Because of um, So one of the things we have seen is that there was a 100% increase in cyclists on that coastal route. So that presents another challenge and, and a dilemma and a decision point for the local authority as to what, how to safely manage uh, cyclists and, and pedestrians. So safety is obviously key. Uh, mobility is really important and sustainable mobility so these are policies that have been place for 20-30 years across all local authorities and nationally and locally so we should be promoting and facilitating walking, cycling public transport and COVID uh, again is a very cruel um, uh, disease to deal with and it has impacted on the ability of public transport to operate and so it's, it has reduced capacity and I guess in the near right now, we believe the best way to respond to that is actually to enable um, active mobility, to enable walking and cycling and to promote that, and that will help, I suppose, support public transport until it gets back up and running. And thirdly, we are about supporting our communities, we are about supporting our local economies, our local businesses, so, you know, there's probably more to, to discuss there, but those three... Uh, high level values are probably at the core of what, uh, what we're trying to do and particularly in our sp- in our response to, to COVID-19
0: And what about you personally? Like, What draws you to this work or what drew you to this work?
1: Um, I guess firstly it was my role um, and it's just a matter of circumstance really in some ways because if it, if it all happened six months earlier I may not have been in that role so I just happened to be director at the time uh, I was asked to, to manage our response as a local authority and we started from very little um, so I can remember the, it was in the early days of May when we were looking at a queues outside a small ca- coffee shop in Blackrock and uh, Black Rock Village and they were queuing around the streets and I had a real concern about safety and we put out some basic barriers to protect um, the the customers there and that grew into... Uh, what was a public realm project and, uh, for BlackRock, and I guess what's probably striking about all of the things that we've done is how quickly they happened. And quite possibly in, in, in public service and the public sector our local service, wouldn't have moved that quickly on this. But I think that was that was out of necessity. So it's interesting to see how we, we can react, and that's something we are reflecting on now. That if we have that capacity to act quite quickly, is that something we can? sort of transition towards into the future and look to apply some of the, the learnings from that into future projects. And I think that's that's an interesting uh, an idea and that's something that we're exploring at the moment.
0: Do or like How much do different councils or different local authorities speak to each other about what they're doing? Because something that I've noticed um, in Dublin for example, when you go from like the Dublin City Council area to the DLR area, um, even things like the d- design changes, like, you know, I don't think it's it's a positive thing to have a homogeneity of design necessarily, but materials, for example, like let's say take on Drury Street in the city centre, they have these bollards that I find quite ugly in Black Rock. There's kind of just a raised curb thing. Like, do people exchange information about what seems to be working better in different places?
1: Um, yeah, there, there are networks in place and we do speak to colleagues and other local authorities, uh, local, local authority areas. Um, but I guess to a degree, um, each local authority manages its own affairs and it may have a certain culture in place, a certain philosophy, a design philosophy. Um, and in speaking for, for DLR, I guess we have quite a strong uh, point of view in terms of urban design and 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 high-quality public realm work. We've, we've camped that for, for many years and we have a very vibrant architect's department that are, that are advised on, on all of those types of changes. So, for example, in Monkstown, there was public projects carried out there a number of years ago in Dunleary on the Met. And so people, if they know the area, will be familiar with it and it's, and it's good quality work. And I guess what's really interesting about our approach in Dunleary is not so much about the learnings from others, it's actually... It's the cross-departmental work within our own uh, council. So while I lead the team, I work with uh, urban designers, architects, planners, engineers, construction managers. So we have a wide cross-section of um, skills and that fusion, if you like, of the different skill sets actually energizes the team and brings in new ideas and new thinking and actually challenges each member of the team um, on, on maybe what they're proposing. And it does lead, I believe, to a much better design and a much more sustainable design because you have those checks and balances within your team. And I guess my role has been to try and encourage that uh, environment to to facilitate you know, a robust exchange of views sometimes. Um, people have a different point of view. Ultimately, decisions need to be made. And I, I can't speak for the other local authorities, and they probably have their own philosophies in place, when it comes to something like urban design and the mobility infrastructure, or weird design, we think, uh, as well as it being functional, primarily it's, it's about safety and function, of course, but it also needs to look good. It also needs to be attractive because what we do understand from cycleway design across Europe and across the world that one of the key design principles that is it is attractive because if it's attractive, people want to use it. The other reason why it being attractive is important is that if you have to look at that and live with that in your urban environment day in, day out, you want to be looking at something that's quite attractive. So I get your point on maybe the bollards, those flexible bollards, but they can be orange or black and white. If they're what's in your, maybe your your urban location, and some some urban locations are, are, are more sensitive than others. So you could have a heritage town or a heritage village or right in the heart of Dublin city centre. I mean, you know, it has to be the design of infrastructure, including um, mobility infrastructure, has to be in sympathy with that. You know, it has to be sympathetic to it. So, I think that it needs to align, and you need to think very carefully because I think there is a concern that if if there's if there's not enough consideration given to the aesthetics, it may actually be rejected by the people who are living there, the local community. You may not see the value, let's say, in cycle lanes, but would actually see a high value in in their area being livable being somewhere that they're they're happy to spend time on somewhere that looks nice
0: mm. what would be your dream public realm project
1: oh um um I don't know if I really want to look at any more projects for the time being <laughs> we don't, we already have enough on our plate um I guess the the coastal route has been close to it uh we're still not finished on that actually and it's um It's been really enjoyable working on it, and it's been really enjoyable. Uh, Like my life or my working life now is coming into work and then cycling up and down uh, a cycle route, checking on progress. And it's a nice way to spend your day, um, and you know, while I'm looking after the work. So the coastal route is something that's very close to my heart because, um, you know, we spend a lot of time on that, we've done it very quickly. I really enjoy Black Rock and the changes we made there. and I really enjoyed being able to work with the local community and, and the business community there to collaborate on that because even though something, some of the things that we've done here has been quite quick in DLR we have tried to engage as much as possible with the local community because it's important we don't try to force things on, on the local community but COVID is very unusual as well and so we couldn't spend a lot of time maybe engaging and, and talking as much as we'd like because we needed to proceed but we did try to strike a balance and... I hope there'll be other projects ahead, and DLR were quite progressive. I'd like to think,
0: and uh, I'm sure there'll be very interesting, interesting projects coming up for me in the near future. Finally, Robert, um, before you go, thanks so much for your time. What do you think is something positive that every urban area in Ireland could do that isn't, you know, mad expensive?
1: Okay, um, I think I think urban. Our towns and villages in particular, um, they need to understand their value, that it's, it's a place where their local community wants to spend time, they want to congregate, and they'd like space. They simply yearn for space. And, you know, I think um, local authorities around the country probably need to reflect on how they can provide that space if it's not there already. And it isn't about cycle lanes, that's not necessarily the point. It's about the idea of livability. It's about the idea of of people in a town, city or communities uh, having a decent life. And as part of that, they need to have enough space to to move around in and to, to spend time in. And I think if we focus on that, then we'll be able to retain people in our local communities. We'll be able to build sustainable communities. And people, I think, one of the, the major lessons I think that's coming out of COVID is that in the future and maybe who knows might change people will want to stay closer to home and if if authorities can give people those things that they really need and they want and that's generally around space or people centred living then I think that would be a really positive thing uh, for the future.
0: Robert uh, thanks so much I really appreciate your time
1: Okay.
0: Thanks, Una. Bye. Right, getting in the sea this week, of course, this is normally Andrea's terrain. And I kind of hate to do this because I know it's it's kind of shitting on something, but and and loads of people are probably kind of waiting to see it. But on the day The Tenet came out. I was so excited. I booked a noon ticket at Cineworld uh, on Parnell Street in Dublin. And uh, I love Christopher Nolan's films, uh, some better than others. And of course, there's so much conversation about like, this is the film that's going to save cinema and blah, blah, blah. And I just did not enjoy it. And it really made me consider the irrelevance of blockbusters that orientate around a world in crisis or trying to save the world at this time, because you're kind of sitting there and you're considering these, like what used to be these monumental stakes, Uh, you know, the world might be blown up or whatever. And you're kind of just like, yeah, I mean, kind of living in one of these things, aren't we? (laughs) So it is getting in the sea, but, I also think this is a little bit of a silver lining here because, you know, this film cost $200 million or something like that and uh, the conversations going on in the film industry at the moment about how to get productions back up on their legs and insurance and, you know, quarantining crews for two weeks before shoots and all this kind of stuff, which is really expensive, does feel like it will be uh, very difficult for blockbusters of this nature to be made. You know, of course, they also depend on large volumes of people going to the cinema. And if you have to have uh, physical distancing in the cinema, you're not going to be able to to get all those uh, people in. Um, I was disappointed in the film and I was disappointed because I was disappointed. You know, one of those that's a bit of bit of an Inception vibe going on there. Uh little little Tenet in joke. So yeah, it was, it was disappointing to me. Now I know, I mean, i got five stars in The Guardian. So like, I'm sure loads of people like it. Um, and it just kind of does indicate a larger issue with what has meaning and what is actually relevant when the world you're living in is already in crisis, (laughs) at risk. And, uh, it's kind of hard to then suspend your disbelief, isn't it, when you're looking at looking at a film telling you it's not exactly the same things because uh, who knows what was going on in Tenet really? But yeah, it's an interesting one, and that also kind of links into this week's it's bananas because before I started recording this, um, I was absent-mindedly looking at the live YouTube stream of David Blaine holding on to a load of balloons. 20-something thousand feet above a vast expanse of somewhere, I guess, in America um, as some kind of a stunt. And again, this kind of thing is right up my alley. You know, the Red Bull guy who like went into the atmosphere and like jumped out of his little capsule or, you know, David Blaine encased in ice or, you know, I'm just a sucker for this kind of crack. And immediately become invested, even if, you know, 10 seconds before I had no idea it was happening. So when I was watching the the, the stream, obviously it is bananas that somebody is kind of reenacting um, parts of the film up. But then again, you're just kind of watching it and going, I guess this would be impressive if there wasn't something bigger going on. I kind of just watch it going, what's the point of this, David Blaine? you're holding on to a load of balloons, you have a parachute, you're going up really high in the sky, you're sucking quite erratically on your oxygen supply and then you just let go and you skydive down and then there's people talking to you in a radio and then you just land on your parachute and you say, that was awesome. I mean, I, I guess in simpler, less... Um, Simpler times where we needed such frivolous distractions. (laughs) That would have been fun. I just felt it was a bit bananas, not just the stunt, but my reaction to it. Maybe, maybe, uh, extreme magician, aerial pursuits, uh, is just not having the impact that it used to have. (laughs) Maybe I'm just old and jaded. Maybe it's all of those things uh, or maybe considering everything is so extreme and the shock we've had is so heightened that it's kind of harder to top that. But moving on to something more uh, positive, um, my fave bits. My fave bits this week, they include uh, this absolutely brilliant work of music um, by a guy called David Balf, a guy from Dublin who records stuff under the name or under the moniker uh, which is one of those terms that music journalists use that never appears in real life under the moniker for those I love and he I saw this on Nylar9's uh, website obviously you should also subscribe to Nyler on Patreon and listen to his great podcast and read his great writing and all of the music curation tips uh, anyway, Nyler put it on his blog and uh, was talking about this this record, which I I actually haven't heard that he that that uh, David Balf put out last year, and then um, took it offline because he he's got signed, I think, to a UK label, and, and so it's going to be released at a, a subsequent date. But in the meantime, he put out this mixtape, which you can watch on YouTube or you can get on Bandcamp. I bought the cassette of it, even though I don't have a cassette player. I just thought it would be a nice thing to have because I feel like it's very obvious that this guy is extraordinarily talented and is going to be a very important uh, Irish artist. The mixtape is called Into a World That Doesn't Understand It Unless You're From It and uh, is an amazing, like weirdly original, even though, like it feels super original, even though a lot of the musical references are, are very familiar. Um, mixtures of like, almost like, like just kind of Dublin rave culture type sounds (laughs) or hardcore sounds and more ambient sounds and techno sounds. And then this, this amazing spoken lyrics about uh, his, his life and his experiences from childhood to uh, present day. So I would highly recommend that. It's about 47 minutes long. Put on your headphones or put on your speaker or whatever and get into it. It's a vibe. My other fave bit is a self-generated fave bit. I got an email uh, from a young, from a from a teenager the other day, uh, asking me about advice for starting out in journalism, uh, which I happily provided. And um, I ended up, for some reason, I just ended up recommending these films to this young woman about journalism that you know might spark something and uh as I was kind of listing them I was like god like there's actually loads of <laughs> really good films about journalism so I started journalism movie season in my house and the other night I watched The Paper which I'd never seen Ron Howard film uh it's quite cheesy in places you know there's, there's it's quite cliched kind of caricatures but also very enjoyable and a really great script. Uh watched Zodiac last night. I forgot how fucking violent uh Zodiac is. Um by you know, a serial killer uh surprise violent film. No, it's, it's quite graphic. David Fincher movie, I'm sure loads of people have seen it. Really good cast. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal and uh Mark Rufflow. And then next up on my list is the Parallax View, which I've never seen. And also network, a classic. So, if you're looking for something to do, why not theme uh, a a movie season for yourself? I've found it really difficult to watch narrative drama over the past six months. On my just headspace and attention capacity, just like isn't there watching a lot of docs? That's fine, uh, but but not kind of drama. So. I'm trying to force myself back into it because obviously it's hugely enjoyable. Um, the tuna chicken roll this week. So those are my favorite bits. Oh, my other favourite bits, sorry. I'm uh, The Fringe, Dublin Fringe Festival is starting. There's loads of stuff uh, online and off. I'm going to a Dublin Digital radio thing on Saturday. DDR being my favorite radio station. You should also support them on Patreon. I listen to that like every night. Uh, and sometimes during the day too Uh, it's just so fantastic it's so amazing to have something like DDR because it makes you feel that all of those things that were really special during your formative years like in your teens and in your 20s that you look back on now and go oh god that was so amazing and you think that you can never get that level of you know excitement or investment in something back and then Dublin Digital Radio for me like I've loved it for ages, obviously, but really, this year, its importance has really kind of landed with me. Um, you know, before I was like, you know, in the few, few, you know, you in the in like years running up to this, I'm just like, DDR is great, I love it. It's so brilliant. The shows are good. The music is good. I love the presenting style. I love their ideas about how to make something. And how that like model of community and doing it yourself is is so valuable, not just for radio, but for everything, you know? So like, I love the philosophy. I love the, just the whole, you know, um, yeah, just every, everything about it. But then this year, I guess just being at home so much, like just having it on and just feeling so connected to the people who are making it, even though I don't really know them, and um, the sense of discovery with it is, is so special. So they're doing—I uh, don't know, even know what it is really. I just bought a ticket to it. Something in in, in Dublin on on uh, Saturday, and then I'm going to a stand-up show, I think, comedy thing called Token Sis, and then uh, a thing by Matt Bracco called Initiation, um, which is like a uh, you know, some kind of like mad event that takes place over Zoom. Um, Bracco's like a a really fantastic artist. And um, I think this might be a a type of development of something that he presented at uh, the um, theatre machine uh, last year. Was it last year? Hang on, Sarah's in the room with me. Was it last year? Oh, I had my headphones on, sorry. Okay. <laughs> Do you know that thing Matthew Bracco did, the seance thing? Was that in Theatre Machine? Was that last year or the year before? Yeah, the year before. The year before last. last. Year. Okay, so 2018. Um, apologies for that interruption uh, that I made. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get back to work. You get back to work. Well done. Um, and uh, it was like this really intriguing uh, evening Uh, so I'm hoping maybe that that's feeding into this but if you are looking for something to see in the fringe that's at home but that also has a live vibe to it um, that might be the one Uh, so check that out yeah so those are all of my fave bits so Andrea usually picks a tuna chicken roll Uh, she also accuses me of um, you know being having too much down tempo music in my life uh so, I'm going to actually choose a, a classic that is very important to me and my mates. I'm going to go for this week's Tuna Chicken Roll, Being emerge by Fisher Spooner. I've been Una. Uh, that was Dior to the Rescue. And we are United Ireland. Have a great week. Enjoy the Sunday Soothe this weekend. And thanks for your support as always.